Uh, thanks very much, Ken, uh, for that kind introduction. And um, I have to start um, by thanking the Economic Student Association uh, for the wonderful invitation to return home back uh, to uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. Um, I literally have not been back since um, I received my PhD in uh, the middle of 1985. And um, I want to make sure you all understand uh, that that is not a reflection um, on uh, how I valued my time here. Um, to the contrary, um, this was one of the most important and uh, formative uh, set of years of my personal and professional life. Learned a great many things here that have had a tremendous influence on me the rest of my life. Um, on the trivial side, I learned that Leinenkugels is not just for breakfast anymore. I don't know if Leinenkugels is still drank out here, but uh, it certainly was when I was a grad student. Learned to stay away from State Street on Halloween. That was the other big learning out here. I remember popping out of the library and much to my surprise, finding a rock concert in front of me in between me and my, my evening meal. Um, when I left in 85, I um, envisioned pursuing a career in uh, academia and uh, didn't really envision a career in banking or certainly banking role uh, that I do now. Um, but I, I have to say that um, looking back, um, many aspects of my, my current position, um, many of the perspectives I bring to bear on it, um, uh, many of the experiences and uh, insights that I, I draw on uh, in my, my daily work, um, I can trace back to um, things I learned here from people that I met here that I learned a great deal from. I'm just going to mention a few. This isn't in my prepared text for the guys in the back. I'm departing from it. Um, but I need to take this occasion to express my, my gratitude um, to many of the faculty and friends I made here. First and foremost, Don Hester, Professor Hester, is in the audience partway back up there on the aisle, uh, was my thesis advisor. And from him, I first learned about Federal Reserve daylight overdrafts. Um, this is an obscure niche in uh, the world of finance. Um, but if you look carefully, that was actually played a role in, it actually played a role in the demise of Bear Stearns and how it was handled. And that, in turn, um, many argue, many scholars argue, was the basis for uh, the fragility and turmoil of the fall of 2008. So uh, an untold part of the story of this whole crisis was Federal Reserve daylight overdrafts. Mark Gertler, uh, no longer here at NYU now, and Rawai Agari, sadly, uh, departed this world, um, were on my committee. Uh, they taught me a lot about modern macroeconomics, as did Professor Buzz Brock, uh, who is actually with us today. Um, Buzz Brock was, was um, uh, famous in the department. Uh, one year, the Graduate Student Association uh, at its regular holiday party was giving out awards to various faculty and graduate students. They gave Buzz an award for taking students to the frontiers of mathematical economics and leaving them there. <laughs> and uh, a richly deserved reward, um, uh, award, I'm sure you can appreciate. Mike Rothschild was here. Chuck Wilson were here uh, when I was here. Great scholars taught me modern microeconomics. Art Goldberger, a name long associated with this place, outstanding professor, uh, an outstanding teacher. Gary Chamberlain, John Gaywicki taught me modern um, econometrics, gave me the most solid possible grounding in econometrics you could hope for. Bob Haveman, 
Don Nichols, um, applied policy economist, really taught me the art of that, really taught me the joy of that, taught me uh, the rewards of um, that endeavor in the world. And that's uh, been an inspiration. They've been an inspiration to me ever since. Rob Townsend, uh, an economist at the University of Chicago, gave a lecture here um, midway through my graduate career, and it, it blew my mind. It was about contract theory, ended up in the AER in 1987, uh, and I'll never forget trying to um, explain it to my wife while standing in line. At the, there was a movie theater on the, on the square, kind of on the northwest side. Is, it still, is there still a movie theater there? All long gone, probably demolished and, and built a Walmart or something, but they, um, I, I remember explaining it to her. I, my lack of success probably had something to do with, well, let's leave that unsaid. Um, uh, ben Bern I met Ben Bernanke here. I first met him here. He was here the summer of 1985, I believe, and he was doing, he was working with Mark Gertler, who was on the faculty here then, and he was doing the research that became so influential on the credit channel um, that has influenced a lot of people's perspectives on this crisis. Um, Steve Williamson was a, fel a fellow graduate student, and, and who he's taught me actually even more about the credit channel and modern monetary economics than anyone else. And finally, I have to mention a fellow University of Wisconsin Graduate School alumni, Eric Rosengren, who's now the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. We overlapped here, got to know each other here. When we met each other here, we realized we'd both gone to the same high school, Ridgewood High School. We sit next to each other at the Federal Open Market Committee meetings. Uh, now, those of you who follow monetary policy with um, uh, great alacrity will know that, that Eric is a notorious dove and that I seem to have acquired a somewhat hawkish reputation um, in my days on the committee. So when I, uh, we do this uh, policy go-round. We do two go-rounds on the FOMC. We do a go-round where we talk about the economy and then a go-round where we, we each talk about what we think policy should be. And the order is sort of random, you know, it's sort of, um, sort of hit or miss, luck of the draw. But when I get to follow Eric, I get to quote Monty Python and say, and now for something completely different. Um, and uh, that sometimes brings a chuckle, which is sort of hard to come by um, at the, the FOMC. Eric, T. Eric was a teaching assistant for uh, Professor Hester. Um, and uh, Professor Hester taught a uh, intermediate undergraduate course in money and banking. Is, is, is there still a money and banking course? There must be, right? So do they do a game as part of that course where each student, Professor Hester shaking his head, alas, things aren't like they used to be, you know, the good old days. So each student would be a bank, and you'd play a game where each week you would submit the strategy, you know, the business strategy for your bank, like what you would pay on deposits, how aggressive you'd be on loans, how much you'd put in securities and reserves. And Professor Hester played the Federal Reserve, and he'd come in and slam the market one way or another, ease policy, tighten policy. And all the students um, at the end of the year had to write up a paper describing their strategy, explaining you know, coherently what they were doing, what they were about, and comparing it to the results. Well, um, Eric was one of the teaching assistants for this course, and he, would, um, he and a couple of other teaching assistants would manage, do, the, do sort of the computer management of this thing. They would collect the the strategy cards from the players, they'd enter them into the computer, they'd process the output and all. So what they were doing on the side, and I have no idea if Professor Hester was aware of this or not, was, would, would be that they'd allow other graduate students to also play the game. Now this gave me an early introduction to moral hazard. Um, 
because what, what they would do is the, the graduate students would play uh, tournament style. So you see the, the students had good incentives. They had, to ju they had profits and losses, and another dollar at the end of the year was good. Another dollar loss was bad. You know, no matter where they were, a dollar was a dollar, and it mattered, right? So the, the students were, the grad students were playing tournament style. So the winner got a case of beer. So now picture, you know, you're like second or third among the graduate students, and you're going into like the last couple of weeks of the semester. You're rolling the dice, man. You're just sort of swinging for the fences, you know. So uh, got an early sense of what uh, truncated loss, you know, distributions would be like. Um, I'll also mention about Don Hester. In case anyone is considering doing a, um, a thesis with him, he was known as a particularly scary uh, thesis advisor, but uh, one of the upperclassmen gave me a hint or two before I took on be him as a, my thesis advisor. He said, here's what you do. So you get a couple chapters going at the same time. So you give him chapter one, and he marks it up. You know, He gives it to you, and it's covered with red ink. There's a zillion comments and things to do. And then you give him this, when you get chapter one, you, give, you have chapter two. You give him chapter two. And so he's working on chapter two. And you, you take chapter one, you look at the comments, but you set it aside. Then you know. He, then you go in to get chapter two comments back. You give him the same chapter one that you gave him the first time. You know, don't make any changes, right? And you know, he'll give you back chapter one all marked up again, and you compare. And the ones he, the changes he asked for twice, those you do. Those are the ones you have to do. The rest of them, you know, he'll probably forget about them. So uh, you can just leave that alone. One, one more thing uh, by way of reminiscence. A study was done about 12 years ago by uh, Stephen Cicchetti, an economist these guys all know, um, who was at the time the head of the Department of Research at, um, at the New York Fed. He compiled a list of all the economists in the Federal Reserve System, and there's several hundred. I think it must be over four or 500. Um, and uh, where they got their PhDs. Number one, Wisconsin. Uh, the year after I got out, with the, went on the market, um, five Wisconsin PhDs went to the Board of Governors. Um, Wisconsin has a long history of sending good people to do really good things at the Board of Governors um, and the Federal Reserve Banks. Pat Parkinson, um, a, a University of Wisconsin alum from 1980-81, I think, uh, studied under Singleton, I think it was, um, is the head of supervision and regulation for the entire Federal Reserve System. Mike Leahy, High official in uh, the Division of, Econo of International Finance. His wife, Deb Linder, is there as well. Uh, Steve Ulner, uh, very influential in, in research and statistics before I think he moved on somewhere. Um, so I consider myself very fortunate to have come to the University of Wisconsin, and um, I think it played a, part, a big part in my success and what I've been able to achieve, if anything, in, in my professional career. I'm very fortunate, I think, to have been at an institution, the Federal Reserve, that's been at the center of a lot of incredibly contentious and um, uh, critical decisions, uh, economic policy decisions over the last few years. In our time together this afternoon, I, I just want to share a few reflections on the implications of those events for two things. First, for economics, economics as a science. And then second, for our understanding of the Federal Reserve System, what the system is, who it is, what it's come to be, what its role is in the economy. And I, I, part of my motivation is that, uh, for that is to try out some ideas, um, because coming up in a couple of years is the centennial of the Federal Reserve System. The, Act, the Federal Reserve Act establishing the Federal Reserve System was passed uh, just before Christmas 
1913, and the system was formed the next year. And um, we're, we're in the process of putting together what we're going to do for that in the system, and that's gotten me thinking about this. But before I do any of that, I have to provide for you my standard Federal Reserve disclaimer, which is the view, that the views I express are my own um, and, ref, and do not necessarily reflect the views of my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. But I, th I consider that a strength of the system, actually. So there's this popular narrative, according to which this most recent financial crisis and the Great Contraction have eroded the credibility of economics. Now, I think there's, there's still very important research questions that are open, that deserve future work um, uh, and attention, especially from young economists like you. But I think the critics have gone overboard, and I'm going to talk about that. The popular critique is that econ economists did not foresee or predict the financial crisis it, that began in 2007 and that culminated in the incredibly dramatic events of late 2008. So in one sense, this charge is true. I stand guilty as charged. But this is sort of like criticizing seismologists for not having predicted the time and place of the earthquake that struck Mineral, Virginia, just 30 or 40 miles away from my office in Richmond, Virginia. So as this analogy suggests, I think that criticism goes too far. I mean, just look at seismologists. They provide, it's a respectable discipline. They provide a rich understanding of the forces that give rise to earthquakes when they occur, but they're not expected. It's not within the reach of their science to predict the time and place of earthquakes when they actually happen. So I want to cite a, a few key works that stand out in the economics literature about that, that really talk about the forces, which I think are, it's, are very clear were driving what was going on leading up to and in this crisis. Doug Diamond and Phil Dibvig in 1983, and this paper was sensational when it came out. It just set, a, set on fire macroeconomics and, and the banking literature. Um, they showed how financial intermediaries that engage in maturity transformation, borrowing short and lending long, um, that is, borrowing via demandable deposits but holding illiquid, less liquid assets, could be vulnerable to runs. That is to say, it could be the case that everyone wants to get out their money quick and they, they act on that and, um, and that, that causes problems for the institution. This paper has provided the basic framework uh, within which economists still continue to study uh, the logic of uh, financial fragility. And I'll put in a plug here for the fall 2010 issue of the Economic Quarterly published by the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond uh, that's devoted, the entire issue is devoted to the Diamond and Dibvig model. And there's a good place if you're interested to go and learn about some of the literature that's arisen since then, exploring some of the quali qualifications and nuances of, of their paper. So that vulnerability uh, to potential problems, runs, financial fragility, whatever you call it, um, has motivated deposit insurance and other forms of financial, call it financial safety net protection uh, for financial institutions and particularly banks. Um, but that kind of protection can seriously distort the incentives of the creditors of institutions that are benefiting from, from that support. <clears throat> so there was a 1978 article by John Carrickin and Neil Wallace that pointed out that deposit insurance gives insured banks and thrifts an incentive to take a socially excessive amount of risk, take on a socially excessive amount of risk, 
and it dampens creditors' incentives to monitor the risk-taking of those institutions um, and uh, constrain that risk-taking appropriately. So that distortion, that government insurance can distort risk-taking, can lead to too much risk-taking. Several years later, John Carrickin, writing um, alone, um, focused on the critical role of regulation and supervision in constraining that risk-taking, offsetting the incentives, the excessive risk-taking incentives uh, that deposit insurance or a financial safety net can give rise to. He cited the danger of deregulating institutions before commensurately strengthening the supervisory regime that they're, that they're under in order to be able to sort of contain what they can do, the, excess, the extra risk they can take on if you give them extra powers. More recently, a former colleague of mine on the FOMC, uh, Gary Stern, he was the president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank, and a colleague then of his, Ron Feldman, still at the Minneapolis Fed, warned us in a 2004 book about the distorted, these distorted risk-taking uh, incentives um, particularly those of large financial institutions that are viewed as too big to fail. That was the title of their book. Without corrective measures, um, they argued that excessive risk-taking was likely to cause problems and result in further instances of financial distress and bailouts, and that's exactly what we've seen. So all of, the, all of these ingredients of an understanding of the price crisis, admittedly an ex-post understanding, but all the ingredients have, were there in the economics literature. My message for young economics students, and I hope there's a few in the audience, is that economics as a discipline continues to be relevant and continues to be well worth uh, the investment of your time and effort, your human capital. And so I hope to encourage some of you, to, many of you, to go on and contribute to the needed the need for uh, scientific advance in this area. There are several popular narratives regarding the Federal Reserve System that have also emerged from this crisis. Some of these are patently counterfactual, um, such as the notion that the Fed is not audited and so we need to mount a movement to audit the Fed. The regional reserve banks, like private corporations, are audited by an external audit company, by internal audit staff, um, in fact, audited financial statements of ours are posted online. You can see them online. In addition, our operations are regularly examined by staff from the Board of Governors in Washington. The reserve system, of course, consists of 12 reserve banks and a Board of Governors, an agency in Washington. We're private corporations, government-sponsored, albeit. They're an agency of Washington. They send staff to examine our operations. In addition, the Government Accountability Office, widely known as the GAO, also examines our operations, a uh, wide range of things. At any given time, we usually have a dozen and a half GAO audits underway at any given time. Finding out more about these audits is actually pretty easy. You can just go to federalreserve.gov, and in the upper right-hand corner, there's a really big button that says on it, does the Fed get audited? The answer is yes. It's right there for you, so you don't have to hunt for the answer. But if you click on that button, it'll take you to reams of information that the Federal Reserve System has made um, public about its operations, its finances, what's going on. I'll mention just one as an example. Every Thursday afternoon, we publish Wednesday afternoon's balance sheet for the entire system. Within 24 hours, we compile and publish our balance sheet. Think of another $2 trillion operation that can publish its balance sheet in 24 hours and does it every week of the year. 
So that's, that's the commitment the Federal Reserve has and has had to transparency. And if you can think of something that we ought to publish, let us know. We'll look into publishing it. So there's some more conventional um, popular narratives about the Federal Reserve system as well. They're less hostile to the Federal Reserve, but I think they also deserve some discussion. For example, some view the Federal Reserve's extensive emergency lending as a vital palliative that was really essential to, to overcoming the crisis. In this view, such lending was in line with the Fed's historic lender of last resort function. That's a phrase that those of you who've taken introductory macroeconomics or money and banking have probably encountered in a textbook as one of the key uh, important functions of the Fed. That function, the lender of last resort function, is said in this view to reflect the founding mission of the Federal Reserve Act uh, that charges the Fed with handling financial crises along the lines advocated by Walter Badgett, um, a 19th century British writer um, who wrote a famous treatise called Lombard Street um, that uh, advocated uh, that the Bank of England uh, adopt a certain policy uh, of lending freely in a financial crisis. I think that this conventional wisdom is seriously misleading. I'm going to try and argue that case for you here today. First of all, Walter Badgett wrote before the invention of open market operations. What's an open market operation? That's when the, the Federal Reserve or another central bank buys a U.S. Treasury security, a, a government security in the open market. So what, when we do that, we acquire an asset, the government security, but we also create a liability. And the liability is either bank reserves, a form of money, or currency, another form of money. So we essentially create money and purchase government debt with it. So before open market operations, before the, 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 the 20th century, um, there wasn't a lot of government debt around. There wasn't enough to sustain central banks operating via open market operations. Central, central banks and clearinghouses generally lent to banks secured by, um, secured by commercial paper, secured essentially by short-term loans that the bank had made. And that form of lending, lending to a specific institution, means that the central bank takes on the risk associated with that institution. That was the only way a 19th century bank had of increasing the money supply. So when Badgett was writing, the, bank, the only way the Bank of England had to increase the money supply in a financial crisis was through lending freely at a, high, at a, at a penalty rate, which was his prescription. That prescription made perfect sense because in a financial crisis, people flee to safety. They flee to money. They want something that's short-term and very safe. And what the economy needs in that circumstance is an elastic increase in the supply of money. And discount window lending was the only way to do that. That is not the case now. There's plenty of government debt out there. In fact, there's, there's more by the minute. Um, and... Um, it's now quite feasible for central banks around the world to vary the money supply without taking on the risk involved in lending to an individual institution. <clears throat> At the founding of the Federal Reserve in 1913, the American banking system was highly fragmented. And because of this, there were some features of the system back then that I think make 
the, the story about central bank credit and the founding of the Fed, uh, that, that that conventional view is somewhat misleading as well. So there were thousands of banks, tens of thousands of banks, over 20,000 banks at the beginning of the 19th century. The need to clear and settle payments among them, checks flowing around the country, uh, gave rise to a network of relationships between banks where they, were, they would be correspondents, they would send checks to each other, and they would place deposits with each other in order to debit or credit each other for the checks they were clearing. Those correspondent banking relationships and the, the reserve balances banks held with each other was essential to how the banking system worked in the 19th century. In addition to that, at major cities, there were clearinghouses, clubs, associations of banks that would band together and economize on bilateral transactions. Um, they would... Uh, they would clear checks together and net them out and just pay each other the net amount they owed to the clearinghouse. In this setting, in financial crisis, the clearinghouses would often band together and issue additional currency in order to satisfy the increase in the demand for money that happened in a financial crisis. They would issue what were called clearinghouse certificates. But the problem that arose with those those crises is that the country banks, the banks out here in Madison, down in Richmond, Roanoke, uh, out in Kansas, they had trouble getting their money out of the big city banks. The big city banks would say, specie, gold is scarce, notes are scarce, we're cutting you off. We're giving these customers some money, but we're not giving you money. So the country banks weren't able to get the cash they need to satisfy the needs of their customers. Um, in a crisis. The banking reform debates that led up to the founding of the Federal Reserve in 1913 were essentially about the governance of financial crises. They were about who called the shots in a financial crisis. They weren't about whether taxpayer money should be used to lend to banks, which is what central banks do today. They reflected dissatisfaction among the banks outside of New York City with the behavior of the New York Clearinghouse and the New York banks towards them, towards the other banks. They reflected a dissatisfaction about the fact they weren't able to influence the New York Clearinghouse. It was run by the New York banks for the benefit of the New York banks. The reformers sought a method of expanding note issue nationwide in a crisis but a single centralized institution to do that was a non-starter. This was the day of um, William Jennings Bryan and the You Shall Not Crucify Man on a Cross of Gold populist movement. The farmers and merchants out in the Midwest and the South were railing against Wall Street financial interests. They weren't going to stand for a single central bank modeled on the European versions of central banks that existed then. They weren't going to stand for a single central bank with centralized control over this delicate process in a crisis. The Federal Reserve System, with 12 regional reserve banks, essentially represented a network of government-sponsored clearinghouses, like the private sector clearinghouses, but with universal membership. So any bank anywhere could join a Federal Reserve System, be part of the system, and have an influence over the way crises were resolved have a way of offsetting the influence of New York on the way financial crises were re resolved. 
Like other clearinghouses, it was natural to have the Federal Reserve System owned by the member banks, uh, the banks that were members, just like the clearinghouses were. Um, but the system would be coordinated by a government agency, the Board of Governors in Washington, to assure, consistent with progressive ideals, uh, that the system would be run for the benefit of the country and not just particular interests. The preamble to the Federal Reserve Act spells out the central purpose of the system, to furnish an elastic currency, that is to expand the supply of paper banknotes in response to shifts in demand. And this is what the Federal Reserve did that was good in 2008. We increased the money supply. Well, we could have done that by buying U.S. Treasury securities. There were plenty of them out in the market. We did not have to take on the credit risk associated with mortgage-backed securities or loans based on commercial paper or asset-backed securities to do that. This is just what clearinghouses did back then. The difference with the Federal Reserve System is who's calling the shot. Is it the New York Clearinghouse or is it this system that's decentralized around the country? That governance issue is still with us today. So governance, this governance issue has evolved. And let, me give you, let me fast forward to the 1970s. So when the Federal Reserve was founded, we were on a gold standard, and that pinned down inflation. Inflation was governed by fluctuations in the value of gold and some other things that were sec of second-order significance relative to that. In 40 years ago this year, we went off the gold standard, and what resulted was a bit of ca monetary chaos. Inflation around the world as central banks struggled to get a handle on inflation. After the gold standard, the only thing controlling inflation is the central bank that controls the amount of money in the economy. Central banks in the 70s had a governance model that was built on this clearinghouse model. And there, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the governance arrangement was workably good. Uh, it was designed to, to provide a politically satisfactory governance of the clearinghouse operations of the central bank. But that didn't work so well when, uh, it w when we went off the gold standard. Um, central banks in the 70s, except for the United States, central banks in the 70s tend to be under the thumb of the finance minister. So the government in power had the ability to direct the central bank's conduct of monetary policy. In the United States, we made similar errors, subjecting monetary policy to the direction of the administration. That governance arrangement of close involvement with the government became a liability when we went on a fiat money standard. It became a handicap, not a strength. And since the 1970s, um, things have changed. Around the world, there's been a movement towards greater independence of central banks. In the 1980s and 1990s, central banks around the world achieved charters as independent central banks, central banks that were accountable for the to the government for their performance on goals like inflation and employment, but had a measure of independence in that the government did, couldn't tell them what to do with interest rates at this meeting or that meeting or what to do with the foreign exchange rate at this meeting or that meeting. That measure of independence was an important adaptation in central bank governance around the world as central banks realized that their, imp their independence 
was important to the credibility of their commitment to keeping inflation low and stable. In the United States, the fact that the Reserve Bank presidents, selected by our own boards of directors, drawn from citizens around the country, are part of the FOMC, gave the FOMC a sort of a ballast, a kind of a counterweight to that political pressure. So we had in our decentralized structure, which was unique among central banks of the world, we had built in an ability to resist political pressures. And that served us well, I think, in the 1990s and the early part of this decade um, in resisting pressure uh, to pursue accessionary, excessively inflationary policies, policies that were focused on short-run benefits but neglected the, the long-run considerations of keeping inflation low and stable. I have to re remind you again, though, the Fed is strongly accountable, like other central banks. We report to Congress twice a year. We provide testimony by the chairman and other officials. We give public speeches. We write papers. We do a lot to explain to the public what the economy is doing, why we think it's happening, what inflation is doing, why we think it's doing it, where we think inflation is going to head, and how we think we've done in monetary policy. So it's important to marry that political independence with some strong accountability. So political pressures have again targeted the Fed policymaking in recent weeks. Uh, we've seen a legislative proposal trotted out one week before an FOMC meeting and a letter from congressional leaders delivered the day the meeting began. Attempts at intimidation should perhaps not be surprising given the severe economic stress facing our nation and the fierce partisan debate that's enveloped economic policymaking around our country. But these are precisely the times when the governance structure that shields the Fed from such short-term pressures is critically important. Central bank independence is a double-edged sword here, however. Here's where I'm going to bring this, this narrative home for you. Independence has helped us enhance the credibility of our commitment to price stability, but it also provides central banks with the capability of circumventing constitutional checks and balances surrounding conventional monetary, uh, conventional fiscal policy. So we have in our constitution a set of arrangements for the conduct of fiscal policy, for raising taxes, for spending the public's money has to be initiated in the House, passed in the Senate, has to go to the President, has to be signed. Slows the process down some, but it provides a system of checks and balances. Central banks, because they have this independence, and because, because that's valuable, and that's valuable because of its contribution to better monetary policy outcomes, to a more long-range focused conduct of monetary policy, gives us a, it gives us an, an independent balance sheet. And we can use, we have the ability to use that balance sheet to direct credit to some firms or some sectors, should that be desired. So when a large financial institution is hit by financial distress, policymakers face an inevitable temptation to insulate creditors from the consequences of default and uh, distress. Such events unfold rapidly. And a central bank's independent balance sheet gives us the ability to provide assistance without the delays associated with legislative de deliberations that are required because of the checks and balances of fiscal policy. 
So we've become an off-balance sheet budget for transferring private risks to taxpayers. And so we're often sought out both by government, administrative executive branch officials, and by the private sector. I'm thinking now that this might be the most important single factor explaining the secular rise of this too-big-to-fail problem in recent years. And the too-big-to-fail, this is this observed propensity. This is what this means, the observed propensity of policymakers to prevent large financial institutions from utilizing established bankruptcy procedures. The central bank independence that's critical to price stability seems to actually encourage the overuse of central bank credit, in my view. So this narrative differs from the conventional wisdom, but for me it provides a persuasive understanding of uh, the main events of the last several years of Fed history, and the last couple of decades of Fed history as well. The founders of the Fed certainly didn't envision all the challenges of the past century, uh, much less the past few years. But the Feds had to learn uh, to use our unique political status for the best interest of the nation's economy. Uh, we've done that by learning how to use our independent political status to ensure monetary stability in a fiat money regime. The pressing challenge for us now is to learn how to constrain the Fed's ability to allocate credit. Learn how to constrain that in a way that prevents and, and I'm sorry, that preserves the independence of our balance sheet management from political pressures. So we want to preserve what's, what's good about our independent balance sheet for monetary policy purposes, but find a way to constrain our credit allocation activities. And I think that's going to be the challenge for central banks around the world in the next uh, couple of decades. The next hundred years are, are no doubt going to present the Federal Reserve with new challenges and new lessons to learn. I think the Fed's federated structure has also made it a very capable learner. It's a system that generates a lot of independent thought, independent ideas about what's going on. And that gives me a measure of confidence that we're going to continue to find ways to improve our performance as the nation's central bank. Given the continued strength and vitality of the Wisconsin economics tradition, I hope that the Fed will have the benefit of talented Badger alum in the years ahead as well. That concludes my prepared remarks, people. Thank you very much for inviting me here. I really appreciate it.